and the 11FS offices in London for episode 86 of Blockchain Insider, the weekly show dedicated to the news of where blockchain meets crypto and crypto meets institutions. Today we bring you Brazilian bank embracing crypto, a European exchange giant is jumping on the crypto bandwagon, and XRP the stunted. Uh, finally, all of this and more on today's Blockchain Insider. I'm your host, Simon Taylor, and I'm rejoined by Colin G. Platt, sitting right next to me. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing all right. It's slightly at an angle, though. It's not well, right next to me. you're not right next to me. You're left next to me, to my left. This is true, but you're right next to me. Yeah, oh, check that shit out. Um, so what's been going on, man? You've been staying busy. You've been looking at uh, what the future is going to look like for uh, cap markets again? I've been I've been quite busy, actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been spending a lot of time on this DeFi. I think that's how it's pronounced. Decentralized yeah. finance. Decentralized finance. Is it is it decent DeFi? Uh, well, it's certainly not Wi-Fi, and it's definitely not Hi-Fi, but I wouldn't quite put it at Lo-Fi. <laughs> <laughs> wow, your your ability to just chat shit is endless. But uh, let's get on with the news. Uh, first story this week comes from uh, block.crypto.com. Uh, Brazil's BTG Pactual is the latest bank to embrace crypto assets. Um, is it worth explaining who Banco BTG Pactual actually are? Yeah, so they are a Brazilian investment bank. Um, believe it's the largest sole investment bank in, in Brazil. Um, they were known for actually being quite innovative uh, pre all this. Uh, have been doing some interesting stuff in the crypto asset market. Uh, I believe they are the first in South America to try to launch some kind of REIT, uh, which is a real estate investment trust Yes, based off of uh, a token. And, and this is the thing they say here is that they plan to raise as much as $15 million through that token offering. Um, and it's going to be, as you say, backed by distressed real estate assets in Brazil. Um, investors will be able to buy the token through a digital platform using the Gemini dollar, the stablecoin, of course, issued by the Winklevoss Twins platform Gemini. Um, also, do we always have to call it the Winklevoss Twins? Do we know who Gemini is without the twins now? Can we call them the Winklevi? Oh, no, I think you can also pay an ether. Yeah. Oh, well. Okay. So, but interesting that there's a real use case, or it appears to be, for a stablecoin here. It assumes that whoever's going to buy into this has some of these stablecoins. I, I think that's actually the most interesting part of the story is that mm-hmm. the fact that an investment bank is letting you pay for something regardless of what it's in using a stablecoin and or ether. Mm. That that to me is the big story. They're acquiring that. As yeah, yeah. Uh, and giving you in return, they're giving you these uh, real estate asset uh, tokens. It's uh, only fifteen million dollars. So I mean, it's it, it sounds big to normal people like us, um, but it, it's really quite small in financial markets. So I'm guessing, yeah, I mean, it's small, but then distressed real estate. You got to say there's risk there, but there could be return. Uh, I think they're guessing fifteen to twenty percent um, in Brazilian currency terms. So I guess you buy in with non-Brazilian currency. They calculate the returns in Brazilian currency. Is there enough liquidity of people that have ETH and or the Gemini dollar stablecoin token to be able to make this make sense? I'm guessing they wouldn't have announced the press release if they didn't have buyers on the other side. I'm I'm assuming that, you know, given the size of this and, and the lack of opportunity to have returns and especially income, yeah. um, even though they carved out, if I'm not mistaken from the article, they've carved out uh, Brazilian and US-based investors. Um, God knows how they try to figure all that out if you're sending Ether, yeah. where the money's really coming from, but whatever. Um, you still have a lot of money in Asia, a lot of money in Europe that's potentially interested in saying, you know, I've got $5 million in, in Ether. I might want to put that into something that 
is linked to something else to help diversify. Maybe Vitalik's putting his money in. Well, yeah, it's an interesting point, right? You've got a whole bunch of people sitting around with ETH that has massively devalued. There's not really anywhere delivering growth in that ecosystem anymore. What if I could move it into this? And that might be an area for those funds to to start to grow and for me to um, to hedge out of out of crypto a little bit. You know, this is a seems like the the first step towards a mainstream option. Granted, it looks like there's only one of these and it's an experiment and they may do more in the future. But it does appear to be by all accounts a legitimate bank doing something legitimate with crypto yeah and and legitimately using ethereum legit legit too legit to quit too legit to quit let's move on all right <laughs> um you can tell once we get to that point of a story it's time to move on um the next story comes from cointelegraph.com um the japanese banking giant mizuho is going to launch its yen pegged stable coin in march um question about whether or not it's a stable coin or not but anyway we'll come back to that in partnership with around 60 counterpart financial institutions, which together reportedly host 56 million user accounts, their new JCoin digital currency, not to be confused with JPM coin, um, will uh, reportedly directly link to existing bank accounts with digital wallets. JCoin wallet users will not be required to undergo credit checks, and the service will be open to users below the age of 18. Um, JCoin wallets will also serve a more flexible range of payments and remittance services than traditional bank accounts with options for people like colleagues, whoever they are, to split bills with family members and transfer pocket money. God, it, it, this is an odd one. This feels like um, Venmo, but for but with a coin in it. I, I don't get why there's a stable coin. I, I was going to say, I was I was in um, Berlin a couple of weeks ago for a stag do, and everybody was using Revolut for, like, that exact same purpose. Um, we were also, like, trolling each other and trying to get each other to send, like, a billion Thai bot. But mm. um, thank you very much, Revolut, for letting us screw around with your system. But, yeah, I don't understand why it needs a coin or if it's really a coin. Uh, I do find it funny that everything seems to be from a bank starts with a J now. <laughs> yes, like but this is this is quite different to JPM coin, right? I mean, this is this is targeting. I mean, not I. I don't mean technically. I mean in its target audience, yeah. right? So if I'm going yeah. for consumer wallets, this looks like Revolut. It looks like Venmo. It looks like that wallet experience that a consumer would have. Except they're treating these coins as if they are cash. Except. They're not really because the money is coming from bank accounts. Mm-hmm. So it's it's not cash. But I'm guessing they're using cash in, cash out regs as a way to say it's the same as walking to an ATM as putting it in this wallet. If you went to an ATM, you pulled the cash out of an ATM and you put it in your leather wallet, that bank would not be on the hook for what happened next with what happens to your cash of your $200 as you walk around the streets and what you buy with it mm-hmm. um, because they've KYC'd you previously. I'm guessing that's the metaphor for what's going on here. That's quite different to what's going on with JPM coin. Uh, extremely different. Um, and I think you've highlighted a lot of the reasons for that. I, I have to question, and I know next to zero, actually, I probably know less than zero about Japanese uh, money regulations. Um, so I'm not even going to try on that. But uh, if we were to kind of engineer this into uh, a US or European type use case, I would imagine if they could see all this thing happening rather than being kind of that cash regulation. Yes, you have e-money regs in Europe, but there'd still be some expectation that you should probably be paying attention a little bit more. Well, I think it is an interesting question, right? Because you end up in that non-custodial wallet space where the non-custodial wallet providers say, I've I've built some technology, but I am not the owner of these keys. So, you know, whilst I can see what's happening on the Bitcoin blockchain or any of the others, 
I'm not in control of that as a non-custodial wallet provider. This is a similar example, except what you're dealing with here is coins that are pegged to real currency from a bank account. So then extrapolate what you just said over something like the Gemini US dollar or the USDC, which actually have built in that ability to say, we know something bad's happening. We can pull a lever and stop that from happening. Isn't the expectation that either A, uh, the scenario, they don't have to do that and boom, great for everybody. And Tether's a great option to do that with, or, or B, they force that down the throats of the likes of Jaycoin. I think there's an interesting question of yeah, who ends up on the hook for that um, if you if the data is there. There's some. I think there's an opportunity for research in that. In the work I'm doing with Global Digital Finance, we've actually started looking at you know what we're working with um, uh, sort of supporting the work of the Financial Action Task Force, and a lot of the work there coming out of um, privacy advocates around how can you identify. Uh, trends and patterns and therefore how can you work with the market actors to build in controls that prevent those trends and patterns so even if you had a, a shielded cryptocurrency you could identify the flows of what was happening with those cryptocurrencies where the points of weakness were and what controls you would need to put in place at the wallet provider to limit that risk and mitigate that risk and what information sharing needs to look like so i still think there's a great deal of scope for opportunity to do that that doesn't end in that traditional you're the you're the organizations whose throat I'm going to choke, which is always the historic one. I think we default to that's the throat I'm going to choke, and I don't know why this has got weirdly throat choky all of a sudden. Because um, I'm here, yeah. That's oh, hey. Um, but that sort of thing is, I think, uh, a different kind of discussion. But what I've been really impressed with is global um, policymakers and, and regulators really having an open mind to the answer to possible. I mean, what they care about is the effectiveness of your risk management. I think 10 years ago, it was all about show me you've got a process. Now it's show me what you do works. I don't care what your process is, just mm. demonstrate how how effective it is. And if, if FATF are pushing that down, the Financial Action Task Force, which is the global body that um, sets uh, rules around how um, you know, financial crime and uh, financial crime risk should be managed uh, across the planet um, globally, uh, I guess that's where the planet is. Um, then uh, and, they, and they work with nation states. I'm guessing then that that filters down into Japan yeah. and all of the other jurisdictions around the world, but it'll take some time. I'll shut yeah. up there. And, and the one last thing I'd just like to say about this is regardless of whether this thing really uses a blockchain or not, uh, we don't know. They call it a coin. But what's quite, I think, quite interesting is it demonstrates that you can have a natively digital asset, if we can call it that, yeah. um, without necessarily needing, potentially, a blockchain to do that. I mean, it's, it's quite useful. Potentially, you can link this up to other things and do cross-border payments. Hey, maybe one of these days, I'll go like, JP Morgan coin and, and J coin could fit together. A uh, little bit of coin love there. All of those coins interacting J-coins. with each other. Yeah, J coins be happening. It's like J-pop, but for coins. Um, I think there's something... <laughs> I'm waiting for cake coin. <laughs> yeah, that's going to happen. Uh, cake coin. I'm hungry now. Uh, there's uh, there's definitely something to be said for uh, that uh, wallet space not requiring a blockchain. Like, just create a great wallet. I think there is something interesting as the same as cash token ecosystem running on something like uh, a, a standard Kubernetes Kafka backend in, in AWS. And then if you're just using tokens and APIs, that becomes this really nice interoperable service that uh, a Venmo or a Dwolla might offer. If you've not heard of Dwolla, um, D-W-O-L-L-A, uh, based in the United States, they basically have done something quite similar to this, but about 10 years ago. Um, and they're reasonably popular in the B2B space in the United States. Uh, and by the way, they have far more users 
than nearly everything that's happened since the beginning of crypto. So I think there's there's a lot we can learn in terms of interoperability that those guys didn't have, the Dwellers and the Venmos didn't have. There are always these walled gardens. I think crossing those walled gardens with real actual currency gets super interesting. Mm. But We'll see where it goes. All right. This episode is brought to you by R3. Blockchain, it's not just for financial services. It's for guys like Colin G. Platt, too. Um, tons of industries can reap major benefits. Insurance, healthcare, pharma, automotive, you name it. Uh, discover the potential of blockchain for your business with R3's quarter platform. Uh, the quarter platform, blockchain for every business in every industry. Head to r3.com for more info about Todd McDonald. Shout out Todd McDonald, friend of the show. Next story comes from theblockcrypto.com, um, and it says a European exchange giant is gearing to jump on the crypto futures bandwagon. Colin, what's going on here? Uh, so this is a story about Eurex, which is part of Deutsche Börse. Uh, no, we're not talking about my ex today. No, we're no, talking okay. about somebody else's God, ex. She was, yeah. <laughs> the, the European exchange or European okay. derivatives exchange, uh, which is part of uh, Deutsche Börse, the largest exchange group in Europe and one of the largest ones in the world. Got it. Um, has announced that they're going to do something very similar to what we saw as a trend in late 2017 in the United States, uh, which is uh, they want to launch crypto futures. <laughs> Aha. Uh, and in typical European fashion, it took a little bit longer than yeah. the Americans. <laughs> well, and, and is this just a case of they did it over there, so we need to do it too? Or is there something different here? Well, uh, there, I think... Ugh. It's hard to say. Um, I think that there's probably a little bit of jumping on the bandwagon, mm-hmm. as, as we suggested. Um, but there, there are actually generally new things, which is uh, rather than just doing Bitcoin, they've announced that they what they've announced. It's been rumored that they're going to do Ethereum uh, futures, Ether futures, and XRP futures, Ripplecoin futures. Um, so it'll be interesting to see. I think the main big difference would be if they're physically settled rather than cash settled, meaning. Rather than you and I changing euros or dollars based on the the price going up and down of a Ripple coin, we're actually delivering Bitcoin or Ether or Ripple mm-hmm. coin. Physical delivery has always been the the kind of I guess the holy grail for will a regulated uh, kind of uh, player in this market move in and actually mm-hmm. do that because that would change the game. Yeah. Oh, it, it would be massive. And these are some of the most technologically advanced uh, businesses in the industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, seeing the types of stuff they've done on the marketplace side of building new electronic exchanges, they're really big. Um, but I also don't think that we should consider this the same thing that I warned uh, a year and a half ago. Let's not consider this a done deal once it comes online, because Eurex also has a has a storied history of launching products that never really get any traction. Yeah. Um, and CME has had a relatively good start to 2019. Um, I think they're up 12% over the last quarter, which is great. Um, but and 12% on a low base is low. Yeah. And, and, and so don't confuse supply with demand. Yeah. It, it hasn't, I mean, they may be happy with their where it ended up compared to their estimates, but it hasn't exactly like changed the way that futures trade. Do you reckon, though, that uh, if they were doing physical deliveries, let's put the speculation hat on for a second, which I think I need Leah to draw the speculation hat. Um, If we were to wear a speculation hat for a second... Is it conical shaped? Yes, it is. Um, Like a dunce hat. uh, Yeah, (laughs) which seems fitting. Physical delivery, what would that mean to, say, an institution that wanted to offer something new to their clients? What would it mean to the crypto markets? 
What do you mean? So, okay. So the real big difference comes down to how you hedge these things. So um, to create an efficient market, we know that there's not always going to be the same amount of buyers and sellers. Mm -hmm. However, with a future, you need, it's a zero sum game. If I'm betting the price goes up, Simon, you're betting the price goes down. Um, if the price goes down, I send you money. If the price goes up, you send me money. Yeah. Essentially, it's it's that easy. Um, when we're doing something like the CME or the SIBO product, we're doing that all in dollars based on the price of um, something, else. something else going up and down. That means that somewhere else I need to be, if I'm selling you uh, Bitcoin futures, um, then I need to go out someplace else and I need to buy Bitcoin to hedge my position. Yes. Um, there's going to be some kind of disconnect between the dollar and the Bitcoin moving, which I need to account for, mm -hmm. basis risk. If I'm able to just send you a little bit of Bitcoin every time the price changes, that makes my, my risk a whole lot less, which mm -hmm. means I might give you a better price on this, which means I need to put less uh, balance sheet into this trade. Which is why we saw, I think it was the CME was putting something like uh, expecting 30% collateral uh, that I, part I don't think will come down. So the difference is not just that the CME expects it, but me as a bank to be prudent, I need to also have oh, other. Okay. So it's not that it's not the CME side; things. it's the bank side. I exactly, see. the bank or the market maker, the mm -hmm. the swap dealer, futures uh, clearing member. Right, I follow. So if I can just deliver you little bits of Bitcoin based off of the price changing, that just makes my life a lot easier and potentially makes this a more liquid market, and I might take more positions, and this becomes a more liquid product. Everybody's happy. The Are we really seeing that though? Are we seeing because there was an argument that sort of um, you know, Bitcoin trading volumes has been seen as a trend that's increasing, even though the price has been sort of um, moving sideways. Very interestingly, a lot of that is coming from Bitmax, which is a Bitcoin futures exchange uh, where they actually allow physical delivery of Bitcoin. <laughs> so um, seems to be what the market wants, or at least that's what the tea leaves are saying. That's what the tea leaves, and it also takes out a lot of other esoteric risks that most people probably don't care about, which is things like banging the clothes, which I won't get into today. Yeah. Um, but basically, playing with the difference between the dollar to Bitcoin price versus the dollars that you and I are sending back and forth for the Bitcoin future price. Uh, we won't get into that. That's a mess and that's well beyond crypto. It exists in commodities yeah. as well. Um, but if UREX is able to deliver something, um, that's going to mean there's lots of very big changes to the members that are actually going through and trading these, meaning they're going to now need to understand how to trade the spot or physical Bitcoin, Ether, and XRP. Do you think that we'll end up in the same challenge where a lot of the big clearing banks don't want to clear the stuff? Well, that depends. Um, I think it would be more difficult for them to do the physical, but not impossible. Because if you think about a commodities future, JP Morgan's not taking delivery of like pig stomachs in uh, the upper Midwest. They're allowing the futures to be traded and then they're closing out the position before it goes to settlement. But they, they need to have some way where they could eventually take care of that in the same way they would receive oil or uranium. If I'm a big bank in the European region, uh, does this make my life easier, harder? Does it make it, what would you be doing to capitalize on this movement? Would it just be, hey, they're doing this thing, but we should do that? Or would it be, hey, they're doing this thing, we should do something with them? I mean, to me, the big question out there is how much appetite is there in the market to actually buy these on an institutional level? Mm -hmm. Because banks ultimately, ultimately will support, banks or somebody else will support this market if there is demand. The question is, is there really that demand to either buy or sell crypto futures? We can make the argument that it might exist um, in today or in the near future, or it's starting to come online that would justify this. 
But it's speculation that's not been proven. Yeah. yeah, put on your dunce hat. Yeah, that's that's absolutely it. And, and I guess whereas you know that um, some of the experiments have shown that uh, the uh, kind of direct custody model can be truly compelling. And if we were to move to that, but with existing asset classes, this is why people get so excited about quote unquote securities tokens. Mm-hmm. But actually, that's quite a ways away still from where you know you can move market structure if you were to take those design patterns and really just th- take a first principles approach to how do I actually build this, mm-hmm. uh, either from the bank out or from the FMI out. You know, where am I in the market? What are my strategic advantages? And what steps can I take to? issue a bond, issue uh, to work in the FX markets, whatever it is, there might be things I can do that, that make more sense than starting with crypto assets for my client base. Absolutely. And I think I think there's fundamentally very big differences between the STO movement and these types of things. Um, they're both potentially valid, but they are very different. And I, the, the one last thing I'd try to leave on this is by doing this, this I don't believe confers any uh, legitimacy on Bitcoin, Ether, or XRP, um, because these are entities that, in, under European rules, do trade financial instruments, and they are building financial instruments for entities that can deal in financial instruments, which means if XRP or Ether are labeled as securities um, or financial instruments more properly in the European Union, mm-hmm. uh, that doesn't change their life. Um, it's exactly the same if you're in Germany. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm glossing over some caveats here, but... It's not a problem for them in the same way that they can trade futures on JP Morgan. I think that's a really good takeaway. This isn't a big legitimate legitimization moment for crypto. It's really a like, hey, they're doing a thing. It's quite interesting, but it's not where we'd start. Yeah. And uh, by the way, on their, their failed thing, something I thought was quite cool but never took off, unfortunately, is trading cloud, like cloud computing. Wow. Now, see, that's, yeah. And we've seen a number of projects try and get into that. Um they the, did uh, it, and then they closed it down about a year later. Damn. Maybe two years. Maybe just too early. Like, uh, to quote uh, uh, most of the Silicon Valley VCs, um, being early is not the same as being wrong, but it is the same as being wrong. It's like, <laughs> wait, hang on. I love that revisionism. Uh, Already, um, next story comes from fortune.com. Coinbase lists XRP. Price jumps 10%. Aside from the headline, um, Coinbase is preparing to add XRP to their Coinbase Pro exchange. Um, uh, they're evidently no longer waiting for regulators to decide whether XRP qualifies as an unregistered security before offering that. Um, in an apparent uh, attempt to avoid market manipulation, though, Coinbase has said it would roll out the XRP listing in phases. Um there might not be market manipulation by Coinbase, but the announcement itself, right? It, they got front run. Like you can actually see the tick prices on Binance. Like three hours before the the official listing blog post came out from Coinbase, you can see the price jump ten percent. <laughs> this is this is not like a widely traded market, and it's not one where it may or may not be illegal to do that type of market manipulation in XRP or any other cryptocurrency jury's still out um but it's definitely not the same thing as trading well FX. you can look at the timestamp of the blog and you can look at the price charts on binance and it's like oh hang on a minute three hours before that blog post this spike happened hmm i wonder why yeah yeah it, it does beg the question but they, that, but that aside um they're they're registered in the u.s as an ats they bought one so the, if it is uh listed as a security that's no problem for coinbase depending on who they let trade it on Coinbase Pro. But let's remember part of the name is Pro. So theoretically, they would they only work with people who yeah have the requisite 
Uh, or aren't in areas where they're concerned about it. They've already ruled out um, New York, New York, and there's a couple other ones that they can't deal in. Yeah. So th- I, I guess this is uh, a lot more of a baby step than it appears to be. When you read Coinbase lists XRP, you immediately think Coinbase, the consumer wallet and app that the mass consumers can access, which is 100% not the case here. This is something that, as you say, if XRP were to be found out to be a security at some point in the future, th- Coinbase would have their own backs covered. And not saying it is or it isn't. I have no idea, and I'm not a lawyer, and I'm definitely Hence not the a word if. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, again, I think uh, considering – at one point, I think that there was a view that if XRP was listed on Coinbase, it would be a huge event. Um, I, I would argue it's not, because if you look at the list of things trading on Coinbase Pro now – They've got all kinds of very questionable things in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it almost kind of, you'd wonder uh, why it hadn't happened earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's probably a bigger part of the story if we really delve into it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, they probably, it, the article says that they've given up waiting on regulators. I, I would go ahead and, and guess that they probably had enough certainty from lawyers and regulators to say, it's not going to be a problem if you do it in this way. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's ultimately why they've done it at the time they've done it. So Swift is screwed. Uh, uh, how do you get there? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, let's move on. Um, Coindesk.com. Uh, apparently, validators have created a new attack vector for decentralized systems. Um, wow, that's a messy sentence. Validators, attack vectors, decentralized systems. Let's just like unpack that sentence first. Okay, so this is a an opinion uh, article from Pascal Thelman. I think that's how you pronounce it. Tillman Thelman, who's the CMO of Bounty Zero X, uh, which is a service for earning crypto. Um, and he also works for a crypto uh, PR firm. But he's talking specifically in this article, article about proof of stake. Right. Um, this is the famous replacement for proof of work that Ethereum is is looking to move towards as part of Casper upgrade and Ethereum 2, 2.0, I think is the, the going term here. But basically, proof of work is the, the mm. mining using tons of energy and all that great stuff. We can argue whether it's good or bad. Let's put that aside. This is uh, creating something that theoretically I like to think of as more um, a bit like a poker game uh, mm-hmm. where you actually put your chips out on the table. And if you lose, those things disappear. If you win, you get more tokens. Uh, it's it's quite, you know, whatever. Um, it uses a whole lot less electricity. You could theoretically run an entire blockchain's validation stuff on your phone. I'm waving my phone around here. And, and Vitalik talked about this when we had yep. him on Blockchain Insider a good number of episodes now. Uh, I think it was episode 76. Uh, if you want to scroll back and listen to Vitalik giving us a good run through of that. Exactly. And he can explain it much better than I can. Yeah. But um, I, I think what Pascal has, has pointed out, and I completely agree with this, is um, while it may sound great on paper, um, and I think it's it's an ideal to work towards, there's a lot of unknowns. Um, and he's pointing out a couple of unknowns in these systems where um, validators can potentially collude to do something that may be cheaper, or there's different attack vectors uh, where somebody can buy these things OTC or uh, exploit other types of attacks where they don't really need to control that much money. Um, and potentially a whole lot less money. Oh, I see. Um, so you could buy, yeah, you would put down 2% of what I actually need to get a whole bunch of staking equipment and boom, suddenly because I bought that OTC, um, I can control much more of the market because I've got the, the voting rights to do so. Exactly. Um, and so the central argument is there's a lot of moving parts. Um, it's very new. It's been tried, but on, on a much smaller scale than something like an Ethereum. Um, Isn't Dash based on a sort of proof of stake? 
it's it's a version of proof of stake, but yeah. I think it's also a hybrid between proof of work and proof of stake. But I may be wrong there. I'm okay. not an expert on Dash. Um, but there are some other ones. I think uh, NXT was one of the early mm-hmm. ones to maybe the first one to come up with it. Um, Tezos and EOS use a form of proof of stake. As yeah, far as they're quite different, aren't they? They're very different. So EOS uses something called delegated proof of stake, which yeah. is where you have money and then you give that you to know, one of several, one of, of several twenty-one entities uh, to yeah. do the validation process. Whereas I think Tezos is kind of more of a conglomerate where people get together and they vote on these things and mm-hmm. get distributed. Um, so functionally, they're, they're similar, um, but technically they're very different. Ultimately, the, the stakers have to make a decision before the staking is done, right? And that's, that, yeah. that second layer of abstraction seems to solve it. It's unclear which way Ethereum is going to go. And Ethereum does appear to be the, the one that has the bigger risk moving from, you know, they've got it's a bigger existing, system. Yeah. And there's also, they've got tech debt. At this point, they've got okay. a whole bunch of transactions sitting on the resisting mainnet. Like, mm. how does that transition work? There's a whole bunch of questions for them. And and I think that getting that balance right is going to be the complexity here that Ethereum will have to ultimately prove, and all the weight will be on their shoulder. It's not on, as you rightly said, the ones that don't have that tech debt, which they can look at it uh, little by little. Um, so I, I think that very valid points. Um, I am not able to answer whether all of them are technically uh, an issue for Ethereum, but I think this, if you're looking at building on public net Ethereum specifically, mm-hmm. uh, I, I would be asking the question of like, how is this going to affect my business in the future? Um, there's also risks of at some point in the future, Ethereum is going to move to Ethereum 2.0. Yeah. Ethereum 1.x or 1.0 may not actually die um, in the same way that ETC didn't die. Uh, yeah. So, and that may be a very good thing for people still using it in the same way that if you're into programming, Python 2.7 still lives <laughs> right next to Python uh, 3.3, I think we're at now, or 3.4. Don't keep up with Python versions. I'm going to be really honest with you. Twos and threes both exist in Java. Uh, I'd be better off with Java, but hey. Um, stories we didn't have time to cover this week. Uh, Coindesk.com, Warren Buffett, Bitcoin is a delusion, but blockchain is ingenious. Interesting to see uh, him starting to make that we we love uh, blockchain, not Bitcoin sort of argument. But his rationale for why is, as ever, per Warren Buffett, um, kind of from first principles and really well thought through, if nothing else. We've talked about him before, though. And Warren Buffett just functionally doesn't like assets that don't have cash flow associated with them. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, put, no, take it with a grain of salt. Yeah. Um, Coindesk.com, SoftBank eyes blockchain to solve issues with online authentication. Go SoftBank doing things. Um, and the block, Crypto.com, Fetch.ai, ICO sells out in about 10 seconds. Good for them. Yeah, that sounds uh, legitimate. Uh, <laughs> uh, now it's time for Tweet of the Week. Tweet, 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 tweet. It's the Tweet of the Week. Tweet of the Week. Uh, okay, so Twitter of the Week this week comes from, well, it's actually from Vitalik replying to Pierre Rochard. I think I've said his name right. Uh, yes, I believe it is. Uh, and um, he said, this is the uh, ideal stable coin and store of value. You may not like it, but this is what peak sound money looks like. And it's one Bitcoin continuing to equal one Bitcoin on a graph. I'm like, can we put some context around that? Like, Pierre Rochard is a, is, one of the poster children of Bitcoin maximalism. Yes. Uh, and he believes in something that he refers to and others refer to as hyper-Bitcoinization, which is the idea that at some point in the future, be it tomorrow or in 50 years from now, um, we'll move to something that looks like the gold standard, 
but will be a Bitcoin standard. And there's actually a book by this title by one of his friends, um, which is full of just utter economic crap. But um, and, and frankly, like a lot of it's been debunked as historically misleading. Um, but it's, it's trying to say this would be so, so much better for a lot of reasons. Um, at that point, you don't care about whether Bitcoin moves up and down versus the dollar, because, of course, the dollar is the shit coin that, you know, falls to the floor. Um, and we all think about all of our lives in, in Bitcoin. So Vitalik's response, uh, I, I mean, <laughs> um, his response is, I think you want to use XRP because the chart for XRP, XRP would look the same. So by this logic, um, I, I added the, this logic piece, it's also sound money, except they have institutional adoption, trademark, and partnerships with a capital P, TM, so they're better. I love how this takes the piss out of everything. <laughs> it's, it's a curse on all of your houses, isn't it? it? It really is taking the piss out of everything. Like one uh, one Venezuelan whatever it is would be the same as one Venezuelan whatever it is. One dollar equals one dollar. All you're doing there is describing a fungible asset. I, I think ultimately what Pierre is trying to get at in his original point is, you know, there will only ever be 21 million Bitcoins at the maximum amount. Yes. Um, and we can count on that. And that's that's his view of the ideal what money should look like. Um, Vitalik's taking the piss out of this and he didn't use Ether because people argue, well, we don't know how many Ether there will ever be. Mm-hmm. Um, with XRP, it's fixed and unless uh, something is about fixed happens. supply. Fixed supply, right. Um, and so the argument here is about XRP. What I really loved about this whole tweet storm was the number of like XRP fans that came in and thought that this was Vitalik legitimately pushing XRP rather mm-hmm. than taking the absolute piss out of it. Um, so well done, all of you. <laughs> yes, well done to you. Let's endorse a thing that's making fun of us with with a hearty endorsement. Oh, wait, life does that to me every day, Tia. Um, Alrighty, um, that's not all, listeners. Um, we do have an interview coming for you. So I caught up with the CEO of Metico, uh, Adrian Tricani, uh, and let's hear from him now. They do some interesting stuff around crypto and custody. Great. So we are here with the one and only Adrian Tricani, the CEO of Metico. How are you, sir? I'm very good. Thank you, Simon. Thank you for being on Blockchain Insider. Tell us a little bit more about Adrian. Who's Adrian and how did he get into crypto? Uh, well, from a, I would say, very long path of different, different experiments. Uh, started as a software engineer uh, doing an engineering school in Switzerland called the EPFL, and uh, then switched to financial engineering uh, to, to complete my, my, my graduation. Uh, it was maybe 10 years ago. And uh, finance was a fantastic application of computer science in the end. You know, you have data, free, uh, basically unlimited amount of data. You can try practicing to generate revenues, generate money, generate benefits. And it was very exciting. Uh, so I had this opportunity to continue doing a PhD or uh, to go in the industry as an algorithmic trader. I decided to go the academic way to do a PhD. At the time, I thought it would be the necessary paperwork or necessary title to, to get a nice career. In, uh, in take science. it to play the game, right? Yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. And so... Went to this PhD in mathematical finance, again, applying software engineering, computer, you know, programming and everything to, to finance. Not nerdy at all. 
<laughs> got a little bit boring, I must say. Yeah. I know I had to do it. You know, PhD is always a big venture. You know, you, yeah. you, know, you know that it's going to last three, four, five years, and, and you don't know where to start. You don't know what you're going to do. And uh, along the way, while I was doing mathematics and, and finance, I, I started reading a little bit about Bitcoin. It was 2012 at the time. And I think like everybody getting involved in this field, I was initially very skeptical about it. Uh, and uh, and the, the papers I was reading about it were extremely skeptical, you know, like all oh, this new extremely volatile assets, you know, high T risk, black swan events and everything, all the bad things you can read about it. But yet it was going up. And, you know, I, I have been taught to never invest in things that, uh, you know, where you only see the trend following sort of reasoning behind the scene because it very much sounds like the greater fool theory. Okay. But still, you know, when it goes up uh, two, three times uh, in a couple of weeks, you start thinking, yourself, well, should I be part of this Ponzi scheme? Who's <laughs> <laughs> the so, greater fool after uh, all? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So I became part of this Ponzi scheme. Uh, <laughs> and I, of course, as you can imagine, I'm, I'm, I'm kidding because I don't think this is a Ponzi scheme. But uh, I put a little bit of money, which at the time was a lot uh, for a you know, PhD student. And uh, uh, this became quickly profitable, even though maybe two days later, it dropped 25%. I think it was the first or the second, the, the Bitcoin fork. It was maybe early 2013. Oh, yes. There was this, this fork. Um, uh, I don't remember if it was a block size issue or something like that already. But, and, uh, and so, of course, as a newbie in this environment, I was extremely uh, anxious about what could happen to my small investments <laughs> and started thinking about should I start applying trading strategies to, to it uh, like, like you, know, you would do in, in traditional asset classes. Uh, but, you know, looking more about it, I started realizing, you know, there are like three, four, five exchanges out there and all of them have a completely different price so rather than trying to speculate on where the price is going why not try to arbitrage the market mm-hmm. and there are of course some pro arbitrages today on the markets but at the time it was such it's a niche still market super early right yeah absolutely so you could you could find 10% arbitrage opportunities you know, like risk free at least in theory risk free yeah. so started doing that with a few colleagues of mine um, created an arbitrage bot that connected to MTGOX, mm-hmm. um, uh, <laughs> the famous MTGOX, uh, Bitcoin Central, which was a French exchange, Bitcoin 24 in Germany, and maybe a couple of other ones, and uh, just started generating revenues. And it worked quite well. I was surprised it was my first venture. Um, and uh, so I thought it was going to be it. thought, okay, we can scale this, we can make it a business. But I have forgotten about two things. You know, first thing is that quickly we had hundreds of thousands of US dollars, well, I mean, Swiss francs, moving around a few bank accounts, private bank accounts, oh. uh, our PhD students' bank accounts. So, so somebody went, hmm, that looks interesting. That sounds smelly. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, like, um, of course, you have empty gogs. I don't know if it was in Japan. I don't remember. You, you had uh, you know, French guys. You had some German guys. Money was moving around and it was 100Ks moving. As you can expect, it triggers red flags on the banking uh, on the banking side. So what we did is we said, well, how can we solve this issue? Well, we can ask a few more friends to open private bank accounts for us. <laughs> <laughs> and this was our temporary solution for that. Uh, didn't work well, but we actually were prevented to continue for another reason, the second reason, which was the fatal one. Uh, two of the exchanges went bankrupt and left ah, with yes. the cash. Yeah, and of so, course, we've seen with Quadringa recently. That's, yes. uh, that's a pattern, right? <laughs> that's, that's a pattern, exactly. And, and you could think that today... We've learned from experience and we, 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 we can assume that now there is no longer a custody risk or a central point of, ra- of failure. 
well, it is still the case. And at the time, it was even more the case because uh, I would say it was still a very amateurish sector. Anybody I, could create an exchange. And I think that's fair, isn't it? And we've seen that historically is that somebody came along and invented the perfect decentralized system, except the only way to buy this currency was through these centralized exchanges. And now people are trying to build um, you know, decentralized exchanges, but they're still very slow and very early and nascent. So you need something else. That's absolutely correct. And I think this is the next big, big milestone for cryptocurrencies is to be able to distribute trade. And so tell us about Mesco. Yeah, so Medeco is a, is a company that um, uh, that I founded with uh, two co-founders in 2015, um, understanding that key management would become a, a key issue. Mm. No pun intended. Yeah. Pun intended. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's, it's no, you know, Satoshi Nakamoto in 2008 created this Bitcoin platform where you can become your own bank. And this is probably the strongest selling point or the strongest unique property of Bitcoin, which is that you don't need to rely on a third party to manage your, your coins, your, your assets. At the same time, it seems pretty clear even today that most investors in cryptocurrencies, they prefer relying on a trusted third party. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying this is the right way to do it, but it, it, it seems to be a market just... Oh, well, it's just human behavior, isn't it? Like uh, either it's a psychological norm because it's all we've ever understood, uh, a bit like, uh, I don't know, the bank is where money goes or the policemen arrest bad guys or fire engines or what comes when there's a fire. Maybe it's something we learned or maybe it's something that is an emergent you know, behavior. It's hard to really tell the social psychology of it, but yet the fact remains true, that's what people prefer in the crypto markets. That's absolutely correct. And I've come to conclude that the the real, the strongest point of Bitcoin is not that you have to be your own bank, it's that you have this option. When you stop believing or you stop trusting, or maybe sometimes immediately you don't trust banks or custodians, you have the option to get your money out and manage it by yourself, the same way you would do with cash. Which... um from his field, Colin G. Platt, I can hear him saying um, direct custody is what excites him. Um, and direct custody, when you start stepping outside of the individual, starts to get pretty interesting for corporates and for um, non-bank financial institutions. That's absolutely correct. So, you know, we coming from this uh, from this reasoning, we realize, you know, what are the companies that are most inclined to get involved and to start providing this service? And obviously, it's banks because we already trust them. They already have the financial know-how, the credibility, and so they need they lack the technology. They probably lack the regulatory approval. But at some point, they will get involved, uh, and for that, they needed technology. So this is pretty much how Metaco was born. Of course, we pivoted a few times uh, from the beginning until we reached this uh, the, the, the maturity of the company. We started about helping them tokenize, and we realized that for tokenizing, they would need to store things first. And, and so we launched, uh, we announced in, in January last year, uh, this platform called Silo, uh-huh. which is um, a software hardware solution for managing digital assets. Of course, part of it is cryptocurrencies, yeah. but it extends to those tokenized securities. Define software hardware platform. What are we talking about at the highest level of the bits of this solution? So highest level is, as soon as you start managing keys, you you have to ask yourself, where am I going to put these keys? Mm -hmm. Uh, And um, I'm sure you're familiar with the traditional USB sticks out there, like Ledger device, Mm -hmm. portable HSM. Uh, You have a piece of paper with your seed. It works well as as an individual, as a retailer. Mm -hmm. Uh, But as soon as you're a company, you can't do that. You need to have a solution that you can trust is uh, is managing your keys properly, has a a safe backup that does not involve a centralized party to manage it. And uh, so if I, if I wanted to give you a high-level uh, presentation of Silo, I would say that this is an, a completely integrated solution for managing hot, cold, and what's in between that we call a warm storage. 
Um, for that, well, I would have to define what is a hot, warm, and cold storage. There is no official definition out there. Mm -hmm. um, I like to say that hot storage is anything that is connected to a network, and therefore the keys are potentially subject to security weaknesses or, mm -hmm. or threat vectors. Whereas cold storage is when the key has never been exposed in any way, shape, or form to the to a, a network, to yeah. an internet connection, for instance. But there is a whole sort of ambiguity of what's in between. Mm -hmm. um, can you have something in between which is still maybe connected but has some additional security properties to it than just a hot wallet that is connected and automated? Well, and there's, and there's trade-offs, right? So cold storage we've heard a lot about um, historically it seemed to be the preferred security solution to whenever something had gone wrong at, at, at an exchange oh well they should have used cold storage right it's the, the thing that people roll out but actually that has a real cost in terms of liquidity if I need to be able to suddenly move a large volume of, uh, of cryptocurrency and or another asset and I have to wait to get the person who has the offline key to figure out how they sign that transaction and then get that that's a pain in the ass. That's absolutely correct. In fact, you have this trade-off between security and availability. Mm -hmm. You can't have both a fast access to the funds and high security. You have to choose, which is why we have this hot and cold and why we have this dynamic reallocation between the cold and, and hot. You have to find the right balance to have sufficient availability such that your customers can withdraw funds. At the same time, make sure that if you lose access or the keys on the hot, you're not destroying your whole reserves. But it's important to say that's normal for custody in, and key management in the banking sector today that's normal in the telco sector so have you guys sort of looked at existing partners in that space or have you guys built something entirely new so I, I think it's fair to say that we built something entirely new. Um, let me let me give you a few words about it. You know, if you think about key management in traditional non-cryptocurrency related use cases, in general, it's more about key confidentiality. You want to generate a key and store it in a secure location. Whether it's in a discon disconnected environment or whether it's in a, in a box, an HSM sort of box, you want to store it securely. What's less traditional and what's completely new with cryptocurrencies is that you also want to secure how you access this key with a very strict protocol. You want to know who has access to it, under what multi-signature scheme, under yeah. what velocity. Access management. Exactly. And this is something completely new that, that you don't face when you have a more traditional workflow to having pin codes or these sort of things that are managed by HSM in general. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So I guess uh, there's also all of the additional complexities around a key in crypto can be many keys if the network forks and you get all kinds of uh, subtle challenges that those networks introduce as well. That's correct. And forks have been one of the biggest challenges because you you never know which forks you should support. You know, yeah. Sometimes it's obvious because sometimes you have a lot of marketing around the forks and you know maybe I have to support the, the two of them. Uh, but a fork by definition is just somebody deciding to change the, 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 the source and change the rules, change the consensus uh, policies. And it could happen, you know, some, some Swiss guy in, in our offices could decide to fork the Bitcoin network. Uh, then the question is, do you have to support it from a regulatory standpoint? Should the banks offer to the customers a guarantee that they are going to support the different forks and how fast should we react to these changes? All of this, of course, presupposes that banks have any interest in supporting the crypto assets broadly. I mean, from the Swiss market standpoint, have you seen anything like that? Or are they still, we don't want to touch that, it's toxic? Oh no, it's, it's changed quite a lot in the last 18 months. Uh, I would say I would say that many banks now from the private se private banking sector mm. and also larger banks are getting involved. So some of them, of course, have been vocal that they hate cryptocurrencies, don't want to get involved. 
but internally might still be thinking about uh, custody solutions or the first infrastructure requirements. Other ones have been vocal that they want to get involved, but the issue is that you don't, you never want to be the first one to get involved with the financial regulatory authorities. Well, nobody wants to be first in anything at banking. That's, a, that's a fair point. That's a fair <laughs> everybody point. wants to be second. So uh, I think it's fair today, today to say that um, there are a significant uh, number of banks that are getting uh, right now, even in 2019, uh, involved in with cryptocurrencies, starting to prepare offerings this year in Switzerland. And you know, we also have even with the market where it is, even in a, in the sort of the the down market, as it were. Well, in the private banking sector, it has indeed slowed down uh, the the priority of the of, of cryptocurrency integration. Uh, something that was an emergency a year and a half ago, because the customers were saying, "Why am I not part of this big mm-hmm. rise? You know, I, I want to be part. I want to invest." Uh, today, they are not asking for it. They're, they're very happy that they could not invest. Yeah. Um, uh, however, larger banks or larger even private banks uh, have understood that there is now an opportunity to provide infrastructure for it, to provide a, a new service, and to be ready when cryptocurrencies or securities, secu- you know, tokenized securities, uh, start popping up on the market and going up again. Which is the the peaks. So if you assume that crypto sort of moves sideways for the foreseeable future, that's not the end of the story. There's this whole world of other asset classes that could exist that use a similar sort of technology. And by that, I don't mean um, just using a distributed ledger. By that, I do mean tokenizing those assets. So do you think about that world? Is that a world you're involved in? And, And how do you see tokenizing existing real world assets? Yes, we, we are we are in, involved in this field. In fact, although we are big believers in cryptocurrencies, um, today demand, the demand that we have sometimes is not related to cryptocurrencies. It is related to can we store tokens, ERC-20 tokens for Ethereum that are related to some security or some ICO, for instance. Mm-hmm. And uh, we start seeing big trends, which is obviously global, but uh, Switzerland is I think ahead of the time here, where um, uh, stocks are tokenized and you can have shares of companies that behave exactly like a traditional ERC-20 token, uh, or it can be real estate. We have a few companies in Switzerland that mm-hmm. seem to be now making big progress on tokenizing real estate. I think any illiquid asset class has a lot to win by being tokenized. You can- Is it really a story of uh, making the illiquid liquid? I think it's I'm, part of the story. Because some of the, I mean, one of the reasons a lot of a liquid, or one of the supposed reasons um, an illiquid asset class had yield was because it was illiquid, right? So there's there's a question there about are we taking, you know, in the investor search for yield, are we actually taking away the thing that was good about that asset class? Huh. That's almost a philosophical question. Yeah. I'm, I'm not sure I would have an answer to that. Um, you had I think, a PhD, man. Come on. <laughs> I even have a PhD in mathematical finance. So I yeah. should, be, should be qualified to answer that. But what, one thing I've learned about economics is that you, you know, everything you believe is true is actually changing every year. Yeah, so it's, that's it's, fair. Um, but so talk to me about where you see this market going then. Do you see interest again from um, the worlds of uh, banks and others in tokenizing existing real world assets? And if so, you know, what does the next sort of um, six to 12 months look like? What should they be doing? So, yes, we do see interest for that. Uh, In fact, some of our customers have asked precisely that we provide them with solutions to tokenize and then store these tokens that they've tokenized. It's not just the banks that want that. It's their customers, the bank's customers that are asking their provider, the bank, uh, to have such a solution. And what would be the benefits of having an asset class that's tokenized versus what? Because certainly listed market instruments are digital today. Oh, for sure. I don't think the priority is for these listed instruments. It's the alternatives. Yeah, I think priority is for illiquid 
liquid again. Illiquid or uh, things that you cannot really split in multiple fragments. Think about all of these uh, assets that you can't move, you can't physically move, uh, you can't split. Uh, well, tokenization, whether it's on a distributed ledger or whether it's in a centralized database, whichever approach you want to take, is something that really solves this issue. Mm -hmm. and, and we see even in Switzerland, we have... I'm, I'm going to mention something, uh, maybe I should not, but you know, <laughs> take, this, take this opportunity. We have this company called Dara, which is a Swisscom arm um, uh, that is providing a complete platform for tokenization uh, of, of equities. And this is a state-backed company, Swisscom. So you see that even the state, to some extent, is willing to support such initiatives. It's exciting times. So if I'm sitting in a bank, I think, right, it would be great if I'm getting demand from my clients to get access to have a more liquid version of real estate. I think I could sell that or I'm a structured products trader. And I think actually, if I had this new thing, that would allow me to get out and get that new thing in front of clients that might just win them over to me instead of somebody else. What do you say to those guys? How do they get started? Yeah, so, so, so I would say the big friction that you have as soon as you want to tokenize is you have to find a place to put the assets uh, while mm -hmm. you're creating them or when you want to store them. Uh, and um, there are not so many banks out there that are willing to store and manage these assets. A few of them are popping up in, in Switzerland, in Asia and, and outside, but it, it's relatively new. So I would say you need to find how you want to do it. Do you want to go through some specific ledger, whether it's going to be an ERC-20 token or it's going to be something else, uh, with what is going to be your banking partner to do so and who is going to be your technology provider? And today there is no consolidation for that on the market. There is no one-shop option where, mm -hmm. where you can have all of that. So it's it's evolving slowly. And, and, and one big friction here is the regulatory aspects. I'm not an expert myself, but um, it, there, there starts to being a, a good framework for equities being tokenized. But real estate is still a big mess. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, some companies are confident they can achieve that, at least in Switzerland. But I don't know anything about what's happening outside of Switzerland. I would say it's uh, tough. Increasingly, I suspect we'll see a drive towards standardization and, and those sorts of moves. Uh, you know, disclosure, of course, I'm uh, one of the founders of Global Digital Finance. Uh, the thesis behind that is that there will be a proliferation of different ways of doing tokens. We need a way to agree what those should be across all of the warring technology houses. Like it, the technology you choose should be somewhat irrelevant so long as it does these things. And, and that was one of the goals of, of Global Digital Finance. So shout out to those guys. Um, so if people want to get in touch with you because they're sort of curious about this tokenization journey, they've got some demand for, for getting it from their clients, how do they get hold of you? Well, they can contact us through the through through our social networks and contact me uh, on, on from the website. Uh, we, you know, we're very much uh, available on the events. Uh, we, we every fintech event we have some presence there, um, and we're happy to discuss these sort of topics. Of course, our expertise at Metaco is about storage before mm -hmm. tokenization. Uh, so I think yes, of course. when they start thinking about tokenization, they should first say, "Where am I going to put these damn assets?" <laughs> <laughs> and this is where they start. Okay, we should call Metaco. Uh, custody is everything. What's the URL for Metaco? It's metaco.com. So it's M-E-T-A-C-O.com. Um, and of course, you will have all of the information to contact us and to see more information about the platform. Brilliant. Thank you very much for being on Blockchain Insider. Thank you, Simon. All right. Thanks very much to Adrian for being on the show. Um, Colin, um, you disagreed with how I said the name of the company. I, I believe that Adrian's also said it incorrectly. It should be referred to as Mitaco. Uh, Mitako is Sutako. <laughs> <laughs>
uh, let's share the food. Uh, thank you. No, seriously. Uh, I think direct custody is one of those areas of supreme interest, and we hope you enjoyed that interview. Just to remind you, listeners, the podcast is made by 11FS, and we're a challenger consultancy working to shape the next generation of financial services, whether it's uh, issuing micro bonds, whether it's re- uh, rethinking the FX markets. We're doing all kinds of stuff. Um, if you want to hear more Blockchain Insider every single Thursday, the subscribe button's right there. And if you've already subscribed, please, please throw us a review. Tell all your friends to listen. Um, and of course, we understand you might not want to give us the five stars because, well, Colin keeps messing with the show notes. But aside from that, reviews are awesome. And before we go, just a, a big shout out to Andrew Verona, who asked this week um, by emailing me simon at 11fs.com. Um, he asked, uh, are we ever going to do a podcast talking about the future of blockchain applications for a not-for-profit organization? He's curious to see if blockchain technologies can apply to organizations' financial processes and procedures. I think not-for-profits are an interesting one, Colin, because they're you know, quite regulated. They're, not-for-profits have always been an area of risk um, from a financial crime standpoint. There are Unfortunately, uh, there is a there is a pattern of organisations using a not for profit status as a way to cover some illicit activity. So there are there is a degree of additional concern in financial institutions. There, I think there's also an interesting question about what do what does workflow look like, and what does accounts payable and account receivables look like in corporations generally. Never mind not for profits, and that's an area to really talk about. Um, I don't know if you've seen any blockchain stuff specifically around that. I remember there being a couple of projects focused around Ethereum a couple of years ago that were looking, I think it was called like F for Good or something like that. Yeah. Um, I guess there's two things, isn't there? There's the, there's the transparency. like, there's the transparency yeah. side of like, how are we proving we're having impact? Yeah. And then there's the process side of um, how are my financial processes internally being managed, which applies to not-for-profits and for-profits. And your accounts payable, accounts receivable departments, an interesting one because uh, that process is very paper-based you know you receive an invoice and you've got to pay somebody maybe you have to pay them in a foreign country and ultimately you log into your online banking portal and through that you've got to be able to pay these people but you've got a whole bunch of spreadsheets internally maybe you've got something like zero and an accounting package but that doesn't talk to your banking system we've actually been doing work with a client at the moment uh working on you know what does a workflow tool for corporates look like that takes into account the fact that yes they have an accounting system yes they have compliance things to deal with but they don't want to be a treasury expert they don't mm. want to be an expert in foreign exchange and uh, can i think there's actually a lot more to be done at the user experience side here with traditional technologies and there's a whole bunch of companies that do uh, do that sort of stuff um you know everything from process automation but not just process automation but actually reimagining the process at the bank side for small corporates i think is a huge area of opportunity i think uh sandra rose doing some work around that it's worth getting her back on the show because she's she's got some excellent work in this space exciting to see Alrighty. Um, so thank you, Andrew Verona, for your email. Uh, Colin, uh, where can people find out more about you? At Colin G. Platt on Twitter. And also don't forget to tip me with your XRP bots. <laughs> uh, you can find me, Simon11FS.com or at SYTaylor. Uh, before I go, I just want to thank our amazing production team here at 11FS, producer Petrit, um, and of course, Alex, our editor. Thank you for listening. We'll have more Blockchain Insider next week. <laughs>